Hello everybody and welcome to another episode of JTV. I'm really excited about this next guest. One of my very close friends has been raving about him for a very long time and telling me to read his book, which started off as a blog, I believe, and it's called Judaism Straight Up. And the book basically goes through two sort of different people's lives. One with a more sort of Jewish traditionalist, uh, particularist kind of worldview, and then also the more uh, uh, universalist, cosmopolitan, secular worldview. The two people are called Shimon and Heidi. And in the book, they explore differences between the more, as it says in the, on the blurb, the traditional societies, including traditional Judaism, and contemporary cosmopolitan ones. And the, the argument is about why Judaism and real religion and tradition endures. And this is very, very interesting, I think, in today's world, where it seems to be certainly in the Western world, that progress equals secularism, equals breaking away from tradition, breaking away from the old conventional wisdoms, the old conventional norms. And so I think this is a very, very interesting uh, conversation to be, to be had. So uh, we're joined by Moshe Koppel, who is, I only found out recently as a computer scientist, um, but also uh, clearly a, a philosopher, a political philosopher and thinker and strategist, and he's the founder of the Kohelet Policy Forum, which is uh, an Israeli uh, think tank, which uh, pr seems to be very, very influential in terms of um, helping to shape Israeli legislation. So, uh, Moshe, thank you so much for joining us today on JTV. My pleasure to be here. OK, so why don't we just jump straight into, can you tell us a bit about Shimon and Heidi? Who are they? So we can get a bit of a sense of who these people are that the book sort of takes us on a journey with them. Sure. I, I, I actually wanted to just take two sort of archetypal characters, one representing traditional Judaism and another one uh, representing a kind of, you know, cosmopolitan progressivism, uh, as is very common today in, in the States and in Europe. So Shimon is, uh, is an actual person. He was a good friend of my grandfather, a friend of the family. Uh, he was a, a, a Holocaust survivor, a Gerer Chassid, but um, not a Gerer Chassid as, you know, you might meet today, you know, with the full, full regalia, the full, you know, all the, all the Hasidic clothing. Um, uh, somebody who's, you know, somewhat disillusioned after the Holocaust. Uh, and he represents, for me, what, what I, you know, what I think of as an authentic kind of Judaism, which on the one hand is observant, but at the same time is uh, kind of realistic and part of the world. Um, uh, so I, I take him as a representative of this kind of, the kind of Judaism that one learns at home, not in an institution. And Heidi is just a, a, a typical graduate student in Princeton in the 1980s, uh, who's studying some kind of you know, social science humanities thing and has all the, the right progressive views, or at least those that were the right progressive views in the 1980s. They're a little bit different than, than the current ones. Okay, and I actually wanna start with, I, this is gonna be my final question, but I'd actually like to start with it. As you go through the book, you start to talk about Heidi and Shimon's children and their kids, and what is, what is the product of their lifestyle and, and, and worldview and outlooks and, and, and values? Can you talk a bit about the kind of children they produce? Okay, so th th that's really a complicated question. I mean, first of all, it's a little bit unfair. I mean, these are basically fictional characters. I mean, Shimon is a real person and, and, and Heidi is based on, on actual events uh, that I describe in the book. 
but but in fact, I, I I get to make up the you know the future of their families and so forth. So it's a little bit unfair in a sense. I, I get to create these stereotypes. But uh, broadly speaking, I mean, the truth of the matter is, as I describe in the book as well, uh, Shimon had two children uh, before the Holocaust. Both of them were actually killed in the Holocaust. Uh, the the successors to Shimon that I describe are are not actually his children, but the children of people like him. And, um, and you know, they kind of, the, the point that I make is that in the United States, the, the children of people like Shimon will inevitably, because they're always facing the challenge of cosmopolitanism and the, the challenge of modernity, are always kind of forced to make a decision. Do they want to play to the inside crowd? Do they want to kind of ghettoize themselves in a certain way? Or do they want to be part of the modern world? And the point is that when they want to be part of the modern world and when the audience that they play to is, is, is Heidi's, right, is the cosmopolitans, they, they will eventually become like Heidi. And the ones that kind of hide behind the ghetto walls kind of become more ghettoized than he was, less, less realistic and less open to experience and, and in a sense less authentic than he was. So in the States at least, and I, I assume the similar things are true in, in, in Europe, uh, it's very hard to sustain that kind of, you know, that character like Shimon, right? Who's, who's at the same time, very authentic, very unselfconscious about his Judaism, uh, uh, but at the same time, kind of open, open to the world in, in, in interesting ways. Uh, Heidi's uh, children, or in her case, she has one child I describe in the book at some length named Amber, is very, very woke. So if, if Heidi came from a, tra a traditional background, and even if she kind of rejected it, but it it's part of her, and you know she can always refer back to it as 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 where she came from. Uh, her her daughter Amber is entirely disconnected from from her Jewish roots. She's only half Jewish. Heidi's husband uh, is not Jewish, and and uh, for her the whole Jewish experience is really meaningless. She only uses it occasionally if it's convenient for her to attack Israel uh, by saying as a Jew. But, but other than that, she really has no connection. And in fact, she even rejects Heidi's liberalism, the, the good parts of Heidi's liberalism, which is that she's liberal, she's open-minded. Uh, Amber is, is orthodox in her own way, in her woke way, and, and is not actually open-minded in the way that Heidi was. Fascinating. So let's talk a bit about Shimon first, and then we'll go to Heidi. And of course, I recognize that we're talking about stereotypes and we're generalizing so I really like this this um Shimon out you know this is what I'm trying been trying to you know I, I've, I've been on an identity journey myself I grew up in a traditional home I didn't go to a Jewish school very open to the wider world and and comfortable being you know I liked the fact that I was a Jew and I'm different in a non-Jewish school and I like to share that with others and I never felt threatened but then I, I, I learn and I understand from the religious Jewish world a lot of fear in terms of being of, of letting your guard down too much because of fear that it can shape where our identity. But then you're right then that it creates there's there's issues in terms of lack of critical thinking and personal autonomy and and, and, and prepare, you know, prepare, preparedness to engage and debate with others. And that can lead to all kinds of or why are you scared of talking to other you know, people that don't share our views? Why is that? And 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 my view is can a synthesis of the two, what Rabbi Sachs called a Judaism 
Jewish life engage with the modern world? Can such a, you know, I, I think it's viable, but do, but do you think such a lifestyle today is viable? When I, I recognize the concerns of the religious religious communities of, of, of secularism, but at the same time, I think it's just anti human nature, the human spirit to be, to live a life so guarded. So like, is what I, what I feel is the right path forward for the Jewish community. Is it feasible, viable? Um, and are there any communities or that you feel exemplify that? Okay. So, so the, the point that I was trying to make with Shimon is that in, in a, in a weird sense, that's very, very different from, from the way, uh, you know, you are and, and the way I am. Shimon really did achieve a certain a, a certain kind of, of of synthesis because he was so comfortable in his own skin that he didn't have to make a big fuss about proving to his compatriots right to the to the other Gera Hasidim with whom he lived that he was sufficiently Jewish and sufficiently Hasidic and sufficient right he didn't need to do this because he was right and he knew he was and he knew he had paid his dues up front he had lost his family because of his, his Judaism. And um, so he, he didn't need to kind of work hard to show off. He wasn't self-consciously Jewish, right? So, so some of the tribalism that you're describing that, that kind of puts one off, uh, what's really problematic about it is not the tribalism itself. It's that people are self-consciously tribal and they, they kind of feel that they always need to signal that they're okay to, their, you know, to the other people in the tribe. Shimon, didn't have any use for any of that stuff, right? Because he knew he was completely comfortable with where he was. Um, so it's really, really hard to pull that off nowadays, right? The world has also changed. Remember, uh, it, it was once okay to be tribal and to say, you know what? I'm, I'm gonna be good to you. I'm gonna be fair to you. You're not in my tribe, but, but let's coexist because, you know, we live together and we have a lot in common, even though you're in one tribe and I'm in a different tribe, but I am committed to my tribe's ways. I'm, I'm committed to, to, to all of our norms and all of our customs, uh, but I can be okay with you. Let's, you know, it's very hard to do that now because tribalism itself is being attacked. It's not okay to be tribal now. You have to be uh, utterly cosmopolitan in order to be okay you know, with the with the woke crowd, mm -hmm. uh, you need to, you know, in a sense, they've become a religion in itself, right? You you need to say, you know, there are certain catechisms you need to say, there are certain things you need to believe. And if you don't say them, you're not okay. So it's become difficult, you have to either kind of hide from all this stuff. Or, you know, you need to, you need to relent in a way and, and relenting, you know, is something that Shimon never would have done. Right. Is it something that you you do? Is it something that you encourage? No, I I am I am absolutely in favor of of being authentically and unselfconsciously, if you can pull it off, unselfconsciously uh, Jewish, and loyal to you know to your people, and to love your people and not be ashamed of it. Uh, if you know if you claim that you love everybody, I mean that's just a nice way of saying you don't love anybody. Uh, you need, you need not to be ashamed of your tribal loyalties, but at the same time, you know, you need to understand that you live in a world with other people and that you, you need to interact with them in a reasonable and fair way. It's funny, you know, I, I was thinking recently about the, the, the so-called anti-Semitic charge of dual loyalties. 
you know, where they say, you're, who are you loyal to, really? You know, are you loyal to Britain or are you loyal to, you know, or to the Jewish people? And I don't, I'm, I don't really understand the, the, the charge because, like, everyone goes through life with dual loyalties. I'm loyal to my friend. I'm loyal to my mother. I'm loyal to my community. But I'm loyal to my, you know, my soccer team. I'm loyal to my nation. I can, some people have dual nationalities and they're loyal to both. And it's like, yeah, but who would you pick in? Well, why do we have to play these games, you know? That's right. I agree, <laughs> agree with you completely. The, the notion of dual loyalty, as you say, is really embedded inside multiple loyalties. And everybody, not just Jews, everybody has multiple loyalties, exactly as you said. I agree with you completely. Yeah. So let's talk a bit about the Heidi, Heidi sort of cosmopolitan worldview and, her, and Amber, her, her woke child. Um, I actually want to talk about, you know, it's, you know, we certainly have certainly in the more conservative side of uh, uh, viewpoints, people sort of attack, uh, mocking the woke, the snowflake thing. Um, I wonder before we talk about what you believe are some of the uh, downsides and dangers and things that are off about that worldview, is there anything that you think there that, that are good about the whole woke thing in terms of, you know, Rabbi Sachs said that political correctness is good in, is good in so far as it teaches us the value of choosing our words carefully and sensitively. And so too, I wonder whether this, um, you know, the, the, at least the instinct to want to think about the underdog power structures, um, letting people have more of a free spirit and question their, you know, who they are and what they really want to have life and question structures. I recognize the downside of that because people are just searching for meaning and they can end up going down all kinds of dangerous uh, rabbit holes that don't that go against human nature. But I wonder, are there, are there any, would you accept there are at least some, posi some positives that come from this whole movement? Well, I, you know, I, I prefer to talk about the positives of, of Heidi, which is, which is, you know, what I would call the, you know, standard liberalism, right? Um, in, in terms of Amber, I'm, I'm finding it hard to, you know, to, to, to see the value in Amber's approach. The, the, the point that Amber makes, right, by and large is as follows. You know, every kind of dichotomy that you have, male and female, or, 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 or uh, you know, straight and gay, or, or, or what have you, right? In, in all of them, there are always going to be those who don't quite fit into the standard categories, right? And, you know, one needs to be solicitous of them, one needs to understand the difficulties they have because, you know, these categories exist, and they don't quite fit into the standard categories. And I'm, I, you know, I entirely agree that one needs to be sensitive to the fact that there are people who have um, unusual preferences in life, right? The point, though, is that, that Amber blasts right past that. And her point is that we ought to decimate these categories altogether because the mere existence of such categories makes it difficult for people who don't fit neatly into a category. And, and of course, one always needs to take into account, well, what is the price you pay by, by destroying these categories? These categories actually exist and have existed for millennia because they're important, right? People use them as shorthands for, for certain concepts, they, right? They, they, they play into certain norms that have sustained society. So while I understand that one needs to be solicitous of those with, you know, with unusual preferences that don't fit into such categories, the, the idea that as a result, you know, that the only way we can be sufficiently solicitous of them is by 
making those categories go away altogether, I think is, is not only intellectually inconvenient because we need those categories to be able to have reasonable conversations, but, but, but they're also ultimately destructive of, of civilization. Why, why do we need those categories to have conversations? Can you just spell that out a bit more? Well, I, you know, you will see that during the course of a day, you will refer to he and she not only as uh, kind of a linguistic rules, right, that, that you're accustomed to, but also because they actually matter, right? Whether somebody is a male or a female actually matters. It matters in many, many different ways, right? So the idea that we're never going to talk about he or she, we're going to have 71 different pronouns as there are on, you know, various social media, that is exceptionally inconvenient, okay? It, it runs against a, a very long, long-held traditions that actually have strong value. And the idea, you know, like, yeah, forget he or she, there's gonna be, right? No, it doesn't, it doesn't work. It isn't going to last. So I, I actually, I agree with, with your assessment overall that you need to have um, uh, categories and definitions. But, you know, my question starts off by saying, is there anything positive that's come from this? And I wonder whether, you know, when it says that God, male and female, God created them, that at least it's sensitizing us, at least one positive thing that's happening, um, even though we are men, you know, certainly Judaism is quite clear about male and female, uh, you know, distinctions. Um, but it does, when it says male and female, he created them. I think it means that we're both men and women are made up of both male and female energies, some more than, some more one way and some more the other way. And in that sense, I think that's a good thing to recognize. I think for men getting in touch with perhaps more of a uh, sensitive, vulnerable side uh, is, is a good thing. And for women getting in touch with perhaps a sense of, um, you know, empowerment um, and the fact that they can, they can achieve things and not just have certain roles without taking it, let's say, to extremes. Um, the, 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 are these not, are the, is that not at least one positive thing? I, I agree with you completely. It's, it's certainly the case that um, that some of the biases we have as a result of Western, that is Christian civilization, may not actually be consonant with uh, with you know Jewish civilization, uh, civilization and Jewish ideas. So, for example, you know the notion of sex as being something you know dirty that one needs to to you know not talk about or that right one needs to feel guilty about. That is certainly not a Jewish idea. It, it wasn't a, you know, part of Western civilization for many years. Um, so in, in that respect, it's true that many of the ideas of modernity and post-modernity may actually bringing us you know, closer to, uh, to Jewish ways of viewing the world. But, but nevertheless, I, you know, as I said before, I think that uh, to a large extent, uh, Amber is getting carried away with some of these ideas. And in particular, she's being extremely doctrinaire and orthodox about them. And it's, it's kind of, an odd thing to say, but you know, I think that 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 as an Orthodox Jew, I, I actually feel threatened by Amber's orthodoxy. Uh huh. So let's just imagine Amber's in the room right now, and um, she says to you, you know, you talk a lot about um, uh, the importance of uh, having having tradition and your traditional values and morals and your your holy book and all that kind of thing. Why can't she just focus? Why can't she make her entire morality focus purely? on fairness and equality for all. What's wrong with that? Why can't that be the only moral, um, you know, paradigm? Right, okay, so so uh, now we're getting into some of the stuff I discussed in the first part of the book, which is, you know, uh, largely drawn from uh, Jonathan Haidt's book, The Righteous Mind. Uh, the idea is that, that um, 
psychologists, social psychologists who, who studied morality, people's ideas about morality, their intuitions about morality, have discovered really that, that uh, people from traditional communities see the world in, uh, you know, see the, the moral world as being divided into number of moral foundations or flavors. So there's, there's fairness, not harming other people and being kind to other people and so forth. That's, that's one of the flavors. You could, you could subdivide it if you want. And in addition to that, there are flavors like loyalty, uh, loyalty to your tribe, loyalty to your family, et cetera, uh, which is associated also with authority and respecting authorities within your community. And in addition to that, there's, there's this notion of purity. There are things that one does and one doesn't do, such as there are foods that you don't eat. There, you know, there are certain uh, sexual trysts that are regarded as taboo and so forth, right? Now, the interesting thing is, and Haidt's main point in his, his book is that in Western cosmopolitan societies, uh, what are now often called weird societies, that's uh, you know, an acronym for Western educated, industrialized, uh, rich, and, and I think it's democratic, um, that in those societies, really the only moral foundation that matters is being fair. And the other things like, you know, there are things that one doesn't do. There are things you don't eat. There are people you don't sleep with. And uh, one has certain very special tribal loyalties and one respects certain kinds of authority. Well, that doesn't really resonate very well with, uh, you know, with moderns and, and in particular with postmoderns. Uh, so that's really where, where the difference is. And, um, and the point that I try to make in the book is that you can't just be fair, okay? The, that, that you might be committed to fairness and you know, all's well and good, but your society is going to break down if, if that's your only commitment, right? You need, you need to train yourself in, in um, self-control, right? There need to be things that you don't need. And the, the, the ironic thing is, that societies that reject this idea, this idea of self-control, and there are things that one doesn't do, they end up reinventing it in bizarre ways, right? So for example, in, in Amber's society, there's a million and one things that you can't eat, right? You can't eat, God knows, you know, you, you, you can't eat all kinds of unhealthy things. You can't eat all kinds of things that travel great distances. You can't eat nightshades, for God's sake. You can't eat uh, food that comes from non-union labor, you get et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It seems like we really, really need these kind of restrictions. And if we don't inherit them from our parents and grandparents from our society, we're just going to invent all kinds of bizarre stuff. They, they could create a new holy book. Right. Wow. I, I, never, I never thought about it that way, but you're right. So it's, it does seem as if we need, human beings almost need some kind of doctrine, religion, you know, to, 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 to function. In, in particular, they need kind of, they need constraints on, on, on what they eat and whom they sleep with. Sleep with. It, you know, there's, there's um, a very interesting article uh, written by, um, by um, now her name escapes me, Mary, it'll come to me. All right, we'll, we'll edit this. Uh, who, who wrote this wonderful article in which he said, basically, uh, food has become the new sex in the sense that there used to be all kinds of sexual taboos and, and those went by the wayside. So we invented food taboos because we just need these taboos, right? Societies need them. And um, Mary Eberstadt is her name. And, and uh, the interesting thing is that that was true when she wrote it about 20 years ago. Uh, we invented all kinds of food taboos to replace the sex taboos. But now 
Amber has actually invented all kinds of sex taboos because it turns out that there are all kinds of sexual relations that you kind of think of, or once we thought of as being fairly innocent, right? Where, you know, a guy kind of like, you know, tries to pick up a girl and so forth, which, which Amber thinks of as being, you know, some metaphorical form of rape, right? That, that, that the power structure is such that all relationships between a man and a woman are somehow, are somehow not really consensual, right? So it, it seems to me that, that um, the original notion that these food taboos were replacing sex taboos was not exactly right. What's really right is that we need these taboos and we're going to invent them as we go. And they've now invented both food taboos and sex taboos. Absolutely. And this idea of um, Shimon's um, received wisdom of, of tradition of previous generations, is tradition inherently tradition and, and passed down wisdom? Is that inherently good or does it depend where the tradition comes from and, you know, what it, what it says? Or is just or is tradition, do you believe it's within itself is, is, is a good thing? Okay, so, so the way to think about this, I think, is really in terms of humility, okay? We, we, we need to be modest about what we're able to do and how we're able to design a society from scratch. Shimon's point is this, look, this worked for my parents, it worked for my grandparents, it has worked for thousands of years, okay? There's a reason that it worked for thousands of years, right? There's, it's a reason that it, there's a reason it survived, okay? For example, uh, Shimon wouldn't say this, but I'm saying this. The Shakers were this exotic religion where uh, you couldn't have uh, sex at all, right? So no children in the Shaker religion. So it died out, right? There are no more Shakers, okay? Well, who would have thunk, right? I mean, it was kind of obvious if you think about it, right? Um, that's the way it works. Ideas that don't quite work right? Social norms that, that, that kind of evolve in one way or another, but, but prove to be failures, right? Uh, they, they, they don't give society the kind of social capital it needs to flourish, right? Well, those kind of social norms will die out. The social norms that have survived have survived for a reason, right? And that's the point. Now, it may be that, you know, wait a minute, those social norms evolved as well. They and and they, they had a beginning. They, they started. Yeah. They too had a beginning, right? So the point is not that one never adapts. It's not that one never develops new social norms or jettisons old ones that aren't working. That's not the point. That's not how tradition works. The point is that in tradition, we're just very cautious, right? We say, wait a minute, let's go with what works before we start engineering society because we had an idea. Uh, let's Let's kind of measure that against traditional norms and, and decide whether we're willing to take this risk, okay? So what, what distinguishes you know, the traditionalist view of the world from the cosmopolitan postmodern one is not, nothing ever changes. No, we're gonna do everything exactly the same. What distinguishes it is that one has humility in the face of very, very complex society and says, wait a minute, before we make this change, let's be very, very careful and very, very thoughtful because, because these traditions have been around a long time and there's probably a good reason for it. Right, right. And you speak about Shimon as being 
both a particularist and a universalist, and that Judaism is the synthesis of the two. Can you, can you explain that a bit more for people who might not understand? Because people might look at Judaism and think it's just totally particularist, it's totally uh, you know, inward-looking. Well, you know, let's be clear. Shimon, Shimon's family was killed in the Holocaust. All his friends were killed in the Holocaust. Uh, he was betrayed by the world. I mean, his family wasn't killed only by the Nazis. His, his family was killed by the Nazis uh, with the tacit cooperation of many, many other countries uh, who, who turned a blind eye to their fate. So he has every reason to be cynical about, about universal brotherhood. And by the way, I'm cynical about universal brotherhood as well, right? Sometimes people who really don't mean well for me and my people will use the rhetoric of universal brotherhood to get me to let my guard down. And I'm, I'm not gonna do that. I'm like Shimon in that, in that respect. But at the same time, uh, Shimon is not a person who thinks that the world is here so that he can take cynical advantage of other people who you know, aren't in his tribe. That's just not the way he sees the world. He, he wanted to have been treated well by other tribes. He wasn't, right? And he is prepared to treat others who treat him fairly. He's prepared to treat them fairly as well. And he was very grateful when he came to America after the war that he was living in a free society that was much more open to his freedom. So, so Shimon on the one hand is extremely embedded in his society, sees the world through the, the eyes of his society and the social norms that his parents and grandparents uh, bequeathed to him. But at the same time, he's perfectly prepared to be fair with them. He's prepared to treat them in the way that he would have liked to be treated by them. Right, right. So two final questions I'd like to ask. The first one is, um, you wrote a chapter on the perils of social engineering um, that, you know, people like Heidi, Amber even more so, are in favour of. Um, can you, and I, the Kohelet uh, Forum is actually very, um, it's conservative and also libertarian. It's not so into social engineering from above. Uh, can you explain a bit about, about that? Sure. So the, the idea is this, uh, you, you have all kinds of, of um, uh, uh, people who want to save the world, right? They see that there's a problem, right? There, there are poor people in the world, or there are, there's a problem, there's a shortage of housing that's affordable, or that, um, um, well, a, a million and one other things that require regulation, people aren't eating properly, etc. And the first idea that comes to their head is, ah, I know what needs to be done. The government needs to save these people from themselves or it needs to save them from predators, okay? So that, for example, if, if there's insufficient affordable housing, the market hasn't provided you know, sufficient affordable housing, what the government needs to do is to step in and set um, limits on the rent that you can collect for a, a particular apartment, say based on its size or its neighborhood or something like that, right? That's what I call social engineering, right? You see there's a problem and then top down, you kind of legislate a solution. Now, the fact of the matter is that these things just don't work, okay? They don't, they don't work for reasons that are harder to see than are the benefits that they bring. So just to take, uh, rent control as, 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 a, as an example, right? The idea is, well, yes, we want, we, you know, there were these, we imagine these rapacious rich landlords who have an infinite amount of money and these, you know, these poor people who just need a roof over their heads, 
and uh, we want to set a limit on on the rent that they can take, right? It seems totally benign. It seems like a great idea, right? That's an example of social engineering, okay? What happens in fact is, right, and I don't want to get into all the details, but, but landlords don't want to rent out apartments at below their market price. They'd rather just kind of stockpile them and leave them, you know, until the crisis blows over or give them to family and friends or whatever. And the result is it creates a shortage of housing, right? So you were trying to solve the problem of shortage and you've actually exacerbated. And because there's no advantage to investing in the apartments because the rent is in any event limited by law, they don't invest in them and they create slums, right? And because they can't rent it to the highest bidder, well, then they only rent it to people who look like them. So it ends up in, you know, with discrimination. And then they end up, you know, people come and say, well, I'll pay you under the table, right? So there's bribery. And then the government needs to send people to check that there's no bribery. So you, you have all kinds of cat and mouse games of bribery and, and, and so forth. So the point is that, that these kinds of social engineering things, you, you think about them in terms of what's obvious, right? I want to bring rents down. And then because societies are very, very subtle mechanisms, you end up realizing, oh my God, I've just caused a catastrophe here. I've caused shortages. I've caused people not to move out of apartments they want to move out of, you know, so that other people could move into them you know, and they can't, nobody, everybody's locked in and, and there's bribery and there's slums and et cetera. So, so the point that I'm making is that before one gets the government to implement some, some form of social engineering like that, you really need to think these things through very, very carefully. 99% of the time, you'll come to the conclusion that you're best off just leaving society alone and not getting involved. And that's, that, that's, that's what we do in, in Kohelet. Basically, we are on this conservative libertarian uh, uh, axis, as you said. But would you, even Judaism occasionally will, will, will ha has some social engineering, in terms of the Torah, it has some social engineering. Uh, top-down policies. It's occasional. So I'm so talking about, you know, the Jubilee year when land goes back to its original owners and debts are released and all that kind of thing. So there is a bit of that in the Torah you would accept. In, indeed there is, but I point out that the Jubilee year has actually not been used for about 2,500 years, to be fair. But the Torah, the, the, the val, you know... The... Even the sabbatical year, right, where, where debts are wiped out and so forth, uh, various mechanisms were put in place to kind of overcome it. So I, I think that the lesson that one needs to learn from all this is that Judaism is fast on its feet, right? So not fast on its feet, but but it is it is willing it is willing to adapt as circumstances change, right? But but one adapts one adapts very very judiciously, very very carefully. That's all. Okay, so Moshe, finally, I'd like to ask you about what you think the future holds. Um, for both Israeli society and for the diaspora Jewish community? You know, what, what do you think is going to happen over the coming decades? Okay, so for the diaspora community, we, we discussed this before. I think the fundamental problem um, in the diaspora communities is that one is always being challenged by, you know, whatever ideology is ascendant in, 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 in that society. And you're always kind of either deciding whether to to accommodate it or to resist it. And, and, and both of those have their attendant problems. It's very hard to sit on that perch in the middle that you, you talked about before, where you're at, you know, at the same time, both loyal to your people and loyal to your, you know, to your, to your own tribe's norms and, and, and ways. 
but kind of open to the world. It, it, the world makes it hard to do that, in the diaspora in particular. What I see in Israel, though, and, and this we haven't discussed, and it's a very important point, is, you know, if you read the newspapers about Israel, it seems like a very polarized society. You read about the politics, right? And, you know, the politics is right, left, and it sounds very polarized, and everybody talks in very strident ways. But in fact, on the ground, when you live here, it's, it's really remarkable, right? If you can ignore the headlines and just think about your everyday interactions with Israel. I interact every day in Israel with people who are very different than me in terms of their background and where they come from. Secular people and traditional and religious and Haredi people interact in Israel all the time. Now, sometimes those interactions are a little bit strident and a little bit loud, and you know, and but but the fact is that those interactions are happening. Okay, and that's really the significant fact. What really is going on in Israel, I think, is that there is a kind of Jewish Israelism. There's a culture that's developing over here that is on the one hand very traditional, on the one hand very open. It's hard to see because it's, it's kind of nascent. It's all happening very slowly. It's evolving. We're in the middle of this evolution. We're going to look back 20 years from now and go, my God, what a miracle. What a miracle. There really is a society that is utterly modern at the cutting edge of technology and that really has somehow managed to take the best of Jewish tradition and adapted it to modern circumstances. I, I think it's an amazing miracle. And I, that, I, I agree with you and I hope will, uh, you know, that, that will continue to happen. Um, and I, I'm sure it will. Um, but to end on potentially uh, a, a bitter note, America and the West, what about, let, forget the diaspora Jewish community, the ever increasing polarization that's happening, particularly in America, I mean, are, you gonna, are we going to end up with the disunited states of America? I, I, I fear for the United States right now. I honestly do. I mean, you know, I'm, I, I grew up in America. I have tremendous appreciation for what America did for, you know, uh, for me and for my family, right, you know, who were refugees. Um, but when I look at what's going on in the United States now and, and, and this whole the intolerance of, of, of this whole woke culture, I am scared to death. And do you think that might push Jews towards Israel? That could, that could, very, that could very well happen. I would like for, for Jews to come to Israel, not because they're afraid. I would like for, Israel, you know, for Jews to come to Israel because this is our national home, the one that we prayed for for thousands of years. And that it's desirable to be there and, and, and a good life. Yes, and I think it is, by the way. Having lived in both countries, I can tell you, Israel is the most wonderful place to live. I love it here. Well, it's great for our viewers to hear that. It's good for me to hear that too. So, uh, Moshe, thank you so much. If you want to get the book, it's called Judaism Straight Up. It's on Amazon, uh, available, I'm sure, in, uh, online, which, from whichever country, country you're in. Uh, Moshe, thank you so much for your time. It was really, really um, eye-opening and insightful. Um, and we hope we can have you on JTV again. Thank you, Ali. I really enjoyed it. Thank you.